0: Am I on? Yep. Well, I've got a question for you. Um, Have a think about this question. What are the things that you do or the habits and hobbies that you have, or maybe it's your taste in music or movies or food that others would regard as a little bit unique, to put it nicely, or just outright stupid, or embarrassing to put it not so nicely. What? What? Basically, what are your quirks? Like, what is it for you? We don't have time for you to share. Although I'd love to hear some of these. Like, like, do you clip your toenails in bed? Do you do you chew your toenails? Do you do you like Justin Bieber? You, I mean, like, I found a bunch of um, memes on the internet basically with the line don't judge me because these are the kind of things right They're, everything you know there's things in our lives we want to say to people this is what i do just don't judge me all right look have, have a look at some of these that's pretty much me every day um don't judge me it's sunday i love my little pony don't judge me i know there are guys here who like my little pony okay it's all right I'm not judging you not judging you don't judge me it's cheat day um This is if you like, you know, have your diet and there's things called cheat days. I don't know. I've heard. I don't do these things. Um, How about this one? Wear pajamas all day. Showers at 10 p.m. Changes into new pajamas. Don't judge me. I know some of you guys here. And then my own personal one. I'm going to show it to you. It's a moment of great vulnerability. Okay. So please don't judge me. I just thought I'd drag other people through the mud too, you know. Whatever's um. Now, what I've shared there, or what what you thought about, are probably not too serious. Okay, so you like the Spice Girls, whatever. But you know what? There are more serious differences that we can all think of, can't, can't we? Where criticism and judgment and conflict actually hurt. They actually divide us. And some of these are actually with Christian brothers and sisters in the church, maybe in this church some of these really affect the way we treat each other some of these have created hurts that maybe you are still carrying around with you today now we're going to cover about a chapter and a half of romans at this point but it deals with really just one issue one hot issue that was in their day that will help speak into our situations i'm going to pray and then we'll get into it let's pray father god help us as we've read already also from the gospel reading help us to know what it means to truly love. And on these issues, help us not to be judgmental, critical, not to hurt and gossip and divide. We pray that we might be a body that displays the love of Christ when it comes to these issues. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Follow on your outlines on the center page you got when you came in. Um, I just want to talk about background. Remember last week, Chapter 13, the second half of chapter 13, there's a call to love, yeah? I spoke about uh, how God tells us in these chapters to selflessly, without limits, love. Because love fulfills the law, right? All the commandments of God are, are summarized by love your neighbor as yourself. And love, as I said, lives out that new identity and the new destiny that we have as children of light. That was last week. Now, we're really still continuing on the issue of love, though, aren't we? Because now we're looking at one hot issue for Christians in Rome that had to do with how to live love out. Now, why was this such a hot topic? Well, the Roman church was actually in danger of being deeply divided. Um, if you were with us when we started Romans two years ago, you might remember that the church in Rome, this, this church is in the center of the Roman Empire, started when a group of Jewish converts, all right, they, be, they were Jews but they became Christians, probably In Jerusalem, probably when Peter first preached his sermon and the Holy Spirit was poured out, they went back to Rome and they started meeting together, but they started preaching the gospel together. So, this Jewish group of people then began to be added to by not just Jewish converts, but also Gentile non Jews. But then, what happened under Emperor Claudius was the emperor decided to chuck all the Jews out in Rome. He wasn't a very nice guy. So, all the Jews left Rome and then you just had a Gentile church. But then after a few years, the Jews slowly returned to Rome after Claudius died. But now you've got a church that has a Gentile, non-Jewish majority and a Jewish minority. They're all Christians, right? But there's a different balance now. And so three things we can pick up from this passage probably divided them along largely along the Jewish Christian versus the non-Jewish Christian line. The three things are these. Number one, eating meat. Right, you see that in chapter 14, verse 2. We didn't read the whole bit because it's long, but I will refer to it. So please keep your Bibles open. 14, verse 2, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. So eating meat's the first one. The second one seems to have to do with observing special holy days. So you see that in 14, verse 5. 14 5. One person considers one day more sacred and another than another. Another considers every day alike. The third one, drinking wine. Verse 21, we read this before. Verse 21, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. You see it there, right? Eating meat, observing special holy days, drinking wine. Now, likely it was the Jewish Christians who still held to these practices while the non-Jewish Christians thought nothing of them. I mean, it's a little bit like, I mean, a few weeks ago, uh, the Bankstown congregation, our, our sister congregation, we did an international dinner. We invited people from the local community and we made sure we had halal food because Bankstown, as you know, is predominantly Muslim. Now, you, if, you, if you didn't know before, but Muslims don't just uh, have to eat halal meat, which is meat that's kosher prepared in a certain way. They're also not allowed to eat pork and they don't drink wine. Now, you can imagine a muslim person who becomes a christian but all their life lived under the halal rules and no wine and no you can imagine though like for some muslim converts they still have a little bit of problems about eating pork and maybe even drinking wine i mean probably not all of them but some of them presumably would now the jews were not forbidden from eating meat or drinking wine right But I reckon what happened was, in a place like Rome, they especially avoided it. Why? Well, because at worst, this was meat and wine, sold in markets, attached to pagan temples. And so, even before they they were Christians, they avoided it, because who knows what gods, Roman or Greek gods, these meat and wine's been offered to. So, they just avoided it. Some of them became vegetarians. Now, at best, even if that wasn't the case, at best, there was no guarantee that for the Jewish person, the meat was prepared in a kosher way, okay, like halal. And then, of course, the holy days. Well, before they became Christians, as the Jewish calendar had lots and lots of holy days, like Sabbaths and other festivals and so on, right? They had their equivalents of fasting days, like Muslims have Ramadan, and, and feasting days, like Muslims have Eid afterwards, yeah? right. so this is the Jewish mindset, that you live your whole life like that and then you become a Christian, not everything is going to change straight away. But the thing to keep in mind, though, is that these chapters aren't talking about salvation issues. These are secondary issues. When they actually matter in terms of sin, right, to do something to be sinful, or to say you need to do it because you, you need to do it in order to be saved, when it's those issues, Paul gets very, very strong about it. If you don't believe me, just take a book like Galatians, for example. But here it's different. There's secondary issues. Because verse 1, Paul will call them disputable matters. Yeah? Disputable matters. And if you skip down to verse 17, verse 17 of chapter 14, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know what he's saying? This eating and drinking stuff, it's not really the essence of the kingdom of God. It doesn't really affect whether you're in or out, right? That's why we say they're secondary. Now, it's important to recognize that we have rough equivalents today. There are lots of things in our Christian lives, if you're a Christian, that are really not right or wrong, not black or white, not related to sin or salvation. The Bible, quite frankly, is silent on a lot of things they're secondary. For example, how you dress for church. The church that meets before us at Bankstown City Church, uh, it's a Pentecostal church. Uh, They are all in suits and ties, and then we turn up and we're like in socks and sandals. Um, What music or movies you watch or listen to, how you spend your money, what hobbies you have, whether you can work on Sundays, who you're voting for. That's a hot topic now. You know what? The Bible doesn't address them directly. The vast majority of them would be disputable or secondary issues. But then the important thing for then and now is to also know that this isn't just divided along Jew and Gentile lines, or otherwise, you know, there's nothing that we can really gain out of this because, quite frankly, we're all pretty much Gentiles, the majority of us. But the division is, is along these lines where Paul uses the term strong and weak. Did you see that? Did you notice that? So, look at verse 1 again. So, chapter 14, verse 1, except the one whose faith is what? Weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables, right? You presume that the other type of people were the strong, and he uses those terms elsewhere as well. So, you, you get what he's saying here. Strong, the strong were okay to eat and drink whatever. The weak were not okay to eat and drink or whatever. And by, by this, we don't mean that they had strong stomachs. Like when you go to Asia, right? My wife can eat anything and she'd be fine. I'd like touch something and I'd have like diarrhea for three days, right? Sorry, that was too much information. Um, no, we're, we're not talking about that kind of strong and weak. We're talking about strong faith versus weak faith. But it's not the faith that affects your salvation, all right? Let me explain what it means. The best way of understanding is this. The strong or the strong faith are those who've worked out that because we're saved by grace alone, in Jesus alone, that all of those religious taboos and traditions don't really matter anymore. Right? That's the, those who are strong in faith. They've worked that out. But those weak in faith, well, they're still saved by grace alone and Jesus alone. They believe that all their hearts, but they haven't joined all the dots, if you know what I mean. They still feel somehow that Christians should well, at least avoid... These taboos and traditions should at least observe those holy days because they're helpful. And Do do you see what I mean? It just hasn't, all the dots haven't been joined up yet. Now, the consequence of this, the result of this is you got strong and weak, and they were judging and criticizing each other. So you can imagine what kind of dialogue they were having. The strong would be saying to the weak, you guys are not living in the freedom that Christ brings. Don't you know we're saved by grace? These things don't matter anymore, right? And they were judging them. But it goes the other way, because the weak, you imagine, were saying to the strong, you guys are compromising your faith. Don't you know that you're eating and drinking stuff that might have been offered to idols? Yeah? This is what might have been going on. Now, again, I want to say we do have equivalents, right? It's probably not along the lines of food and meat and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But let me ask you whether you think it's okay for Christians to, for example, watch Game of Thrones. Do you think it's okay for Christians to smoke, get a tattoo, vote for the Greens, bake a wedding cake for a gay couple, or one day if gay marriage happens to attend a friend's gay wedding. Is it okay for Christians to attend? To own a gun, a licensed gun, to buy $1 milk because it's not helping our farmers to splurge on expensive luxury items that are really not necessary, spend a lot of money on an overseas holiday. Is it okay for Christians to do that? Like a lot of money. Is it okay for Christians to play mahjong, to do yoga, to use real money in a game of poker? I'm sure if I surveyed everyone on these issues, you'd come up with slightly different answers. I know Christians who stand on both sides of every single one of these issues. But let me tell you, they're all secondary. They really are. The Bible does not directly address any of them. So, what's the solution? Well, let me give you the structure of these verses. It's a bit like a sandwich, since we're talking about food, All right? At the beginning and end of these chapters and a half, Paul addresses both groups to both the strong and the weak, and I'm going to do that in point two, so I'm going to do the bread of the sandwich first. Then in point three, the middle is he's going to focus especially on us talking to the strong, and that's my third point, yeah? That's how we're going to go. We're going to do the sandwich thing. Because of length, we're not going to be able to read it all. I'll just kind of touch on the arguments. Hopefully, you'll be able to go home and read it yourself. So, point number two, he's going to address the strong and the weak, and the references are there for you under A and B. The first thing he says is, don't judge. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Let's read some of the verses we didn't get to read out before. So, chapter 14, verse 3, I'm going to start there. Fourteen, three. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who doesn't. And the one who doesn't eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Now skip down to 13. 13. So then... Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. The argument's pretty simple, isn't it? We all ultimately perform to an audience of just one. You got that? We all ultimately perform to the audience of just one. He is the Lord. He is the master. He's the one we should care about. In some ways, stop looking sideways. But even more strongly, you'll see what Paul is saying. When it comes to each other, stop trying to play God. You're not the master. You're not the Lord. Don't be like my kids. Oh, darn, one of them's here. Um, Our kids, not our eldest because she's perfect. Um, Our kids love playing parents to each other. They love policing each other's behavior. Only when it suits them, of course. They love pointing out, oh, you can't do this, right? And they love being mum and dad. And it, it's actually quite frustrating because we want to say to them at times, yes, I know what you're trying to do, but you're not mum and dad, right? You know, one of the biggest taboos in parenting, and those of you with young kids will know this, it's enough pressure for you poor mums trying to you know, get sleep um, and trying to tame toddlers. You know what the biggest taboo in parenting is? For other parents to parent my child. Have you ever seen that happen? right? Your child, you know, does something that's a little bit of misbehaving, eats something they shouldn't eat, and the other parent comes on and goes, oh, don't do that. And you're like, yo, I'm the parent. Get away from my child. It's a big taboo, right? And so it should be. Um, because my child is accountable to me. I'm the parent. We as Christians are accountable to God, our master. See, how much of, your, how much of our judgmentalism. Actually, if you really boil it down, when you judge each other, stems from a feeling of superiority. You feel superior. You think you're better. Or a desire for control. You can't stand their behavior. It has nothing to do with you, really. But I just can't stand them doing that. It just really irks me because I want to control them. In some ways, how much of our judgmentalism comes from an attitude of, they ought to answer to me. Happens, doesn't it? I do it. You do it. We just want to play God. Now, note I'm not talking about good and loving accountability in the church over issues of right or wrong or wisdom and foolish living. When it comes to living the repentant life, we need each other. We need to be accountable to each other. We need to welcome accountability. I'm not talking about that. Remember, we're talking about secondary issues. We're talking about issues to do with different convictions on certain things. And by extension, all the other things we might judge each other about are even more secondary, like your habits, your personalities, your work ethic, your dress, your cleanliness, your punctuality. Ask yourself, when you feel those very strong feelings of judgmentalism and criticism, and it's like, you're just watching and it's boiling up i know you know what i mean right it's boiling up against someone or an issue that you think this is so important so important but actually if you wanted to show me from the bible you couldn't because it's secondary let me isn't it true that a lot of that is just my desire your desire to to play god control Now, you see it most in close working relationships, okay? You're on a team, you're in a CG together, church ministries, yep. Close friends, oh yeah. Marriage, oh yeah. I mean, how much of, Karen and I figured out, like the first 10 years of our marriage, we've been married 16 years. The first 10 years of our marriage is just learning that we can't change each other and stop judging each other for that, right? Parenting as well. I do that with my kids, right? I just want them to be exactly like me which is a horrible thought if you actually think it through, right? (laughs) But the point is, why are we trying to play God, yeah? Stop judging each other because Jesus is Lord. The next one is, accept those whom God accepts. And this one, we're skipping to the other part of the bread, the, the, the bottom half, right? 15. The point is here, Jesus, through Jesus, God has accepted all people, all kinds of people without discrimination, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're rich or poor. And he's particularly going on the Jew and Gentile thing, which he'll come back to when we look at the passage next week. But look at verse 7. So 15, verse 7. Chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs, that's Abraham, Isaac, and so on, might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Right? It's a big theme in Romans. Jew and Gentile together. God has accepted both. Now, note, the call is to accept, not just tolerate. You know the difference between tolerate and accept, right? God doesn't just tolerate us as Gentiles. He accepts, which means He receives and welcomes us. Okay, when we apply this, it's not just don't judge and criticize. I mean, that's certainly true. But you can do that. You can not judge and criticize. Oh, I'm going to stop judging that person, but I'm going to stay out of their way. I'm just going to keep my distance. No, that's not accepting. That's tolerating. This is talking about God as our model. God loves and welcomes and accepts and befriends and moves towards. Do we do that to the person, to the people that we judge? Now, is this hard? You bet it's hard. But you see, what he's saying here is that both strong and weak need to work at applying this. Right? Whichever side of the fence on these disputable matters you sit, you need to apply this. But then, up to point number three, he's going to turn his attention to the strong. Now, I just need you to know, and you probably know already, Paul actually sides with the strong. He's actually one of the strong. you see that in verse 14, right? That's chapter 14, verse 14. He says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. And essentially he's saying, like the strong, because of Jesus, everything is clean. Right? No need to avoid meat or, or wine or observe special holy days. Now, if he sides with the strong and he knows that this is true, you'll note Paul doesn't do what we will often do, what I would like to do. And those of you who know stuff, I realize some of you love reading theology and you know, you know what the five points of Calvinism is. You maybe have acted, added your sixth point just for the sake of it. Um, and you know more than other people. What do you do with your knowledge? If you're like me, you like to, not just flaunt it, you like to crush those without the knowledge. I mean, you don't crush them. You just do it nicely on Facebook, right? They write something about, you know, blah, 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 infant baptism. And you're like, oh, I've got something to say about that and you just go for the jugular. I mean, that's what Paul could have done, yeah? He knows a lot. I mean, he's an apostle. He's got the authority and the knowledge to crush the weak case and show how weak the weak case is. But he doesn't do that, does he? What does he do? He says, the onus, the emphasis is on the strong to accommodate and care for the weak. Why? Why? because it's the gospel principle. The gospel, the good news of Jesus says we care for the minority. We care for the struggling. We care for the weak. The gospel says we lay down our rights for the sake of others like Jesus does. And so he doesn't address the weak in particular. He addresses the strong in particular. And let's face it, we need to hear this one, don't we? First thing he says, right, don't pressure, but pursue peace. So, you see, there in verse, uh, verse 13 of chapter 14. 14, 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, You're no longer acting in love now this is really important what does it mean that they're distressed is it just that they see you eating it no i think it's more than that i think it has to do with peer pressure that they'll be distressed because they see you doing it and you with your knowledge because you're the strong pressure them to do it and so they do it even though it goes against their conscience that's the stumbling block that's causing them to sin now, the act itself is not sinful. Remember, it's okay to eat meat. It's okay to drink wine. It's okay not to observe holidays. But if they're acting against their conscience, it then becomes sin. See, verse 23. Did you notice this verse? I think this is what he means. Verse 23, he says, Anything that does not come from faith is sin. If you're acting against your conscience, not out of conviction, even if your faith is weak, if you're acting against it, it is sin. Now, there is the same logic in another book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians in chapter 8. It's not exactly the same situation because there is predominantly a a Gentile church. So it's not so much a Jew-Gentile question, but whether or not believers should eat meat sacrificed to idols. So there may have had some overlap with Romans, but it was more specific. Let me show you some of the verses from 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn to it because I've got it on the overhead. Have a look there. He says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols... Well, you know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial foods, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Next bit. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple. Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. He puts it in pretty stark terms, doesn't it? Now, why is the conscience so important? Because I just made the point. If you're acting against your conscience, it is sin for you, even if that thing itself is not sin. Let me take a quick but important tangent and talk about Conscience. In the Bible, your conscience does not equal the Holy Spirit or God's law, because all people have a conscience, not just Christians. The conscience doesn't directly tell you what's right, right? We think that conscience is like Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio, if you're old. you know, he tells you what's right and he tells you what's wrong. Actually, if you look at the Bible, the conscience is more about an awareness of what's wrong more than just telling you what's right. It it doesn't do the whole shebang, okay? Right? It's more of an awareness about what's wrong and everyone has it and it's not absolute because the conscience can be shaped by human standards. I mean, just here, right, the conscience can be weakened. You're feeling guilty about eating or drinking things that you're not supposed to feel guilty about, Right, you're actually shaped not by God's law at this point, but by human standards, and that's why in the Bible the conscience can be seared. In other words, you can dull your conscience so much it's like you don't have one. It's in one Timothy four two, if you want the reference. One Timothy four two, your conscience can be corrupted. Says Titus one fifteen. Titus one fifteen, right? It can be shaped in a bad way. I mean, just give you an example. If you're not a Christian, and that may be some of you here today. Um, most of my non-Christian friends, no, almost all of my non-Christian friends feel absolutely no guilt about sex before marriage. And why should they? Because their conscience will be shaped by our world, and our world says there's nothing wrong with that, yeah? So, here's the thing. If the conscience does not equal God's voice or the Holy Spirit or God's law, then why is it important? You might think, well, it's not important for the Christian at all. Well, it's because the conscience is the first line of defense, So we found out in recent times how important your gut bacteria is. You guys know about this? Like, you know, drinking Yakult and eating yogurt and supposedly, you know, don't deplete your gut bacteria because supposedly your gut bacteria, and please don't correct me if you're a doctor because I'm just going to speak out of line here, um, your gut bacteria is responsible to help keep your general immunity and your metabolism and general health and a whole lot of stuff that we probably don't even know about, about, right? Your gut bacteria, in some ways, is that first line of defense. It just keeps you generally well. And I kind of, it's like the conscience, all right? See, for the Christian, the conscience is shaped by God's laws. For the Christian, the conscience does get shaped by God's voice. It's not equal, but God does begin to impact the conscience. His Holy Spirit changes you so that your conscience lines up with His standards. And Paul is saying, don't ever compromise this first line of defense, even if it's related to disputable matters. Just like you won't go on purpose to compromise your gut bacteria, all right? You've got other ways of defending yourself against germs in your body, but that's kind of important, right? You see what I mean? The conscience isn't everything, but it is the first line of defense. It's important. And when you act against your conscience on disputable matters and you just ignore it, your conscience can also get dimmed and dull. And so if you weaken it on disputable matters, what's going to happen when it needs to be strong? If you destroy your gut bacteria just through everyday bad eating or bad living or bad health, what's going to happen when a really serious sickness comes? You see? And that's why Paul's call is for the strong not to pressure the weak to act against their conscience because it's unloving and it will hurt them in the long run, even if their conscience is being shaped by something that's not exactly what God says. You see what I mean? So that's the first one. The second thing he says to the strong is, please others for the sake of unity, right? Please others for the sake of unity. Here we're in chapter 15 again. So skip down to chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each one of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Sort of like what we looked at last week, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, the ultimate example is the Lord Jesus Christ. But you'll also see a great example in the writer of Romans, the Apostle Paul. Look what he says. I'm just going to take you to another part of 1 Corinthians. Right, a chapter later, he's still on the same idea, really, in 1 Corinthians. He says this on the screen. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. You see, he's a strong, but he's willing to bend as much as he needs to bend to be all things to all people, especially the weak, to please others for the sake of unity And he talks about sharing in his blessings. Now, back to Romans 15. You want to know what sharing in his blessings... What what is the blessing of the gospel? Well, Paul gives us a picture in verse 5, 15 verse 5. This is the goal. This is what should excite you. This is worth doing it for. Verse 5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. And verse 6, So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's meant to be a great picture, and we should long for this. United praise. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, strong, weak, no matter who you are, you're all praising God together. The very thing that gives God such a big smile on his face. See, for Paul, that's worth it. That's worth giving up his rights for. So as I finish, I want to ask, how much is it worth to you? How much is unity worth to you? Because that's the biggest challenge for all of us. How much do you actually care about church unity? Chapter 14, verse 19. He says, let us therefore make every effort. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Edification means to build each other up. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. But it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So my question is, friends, do you make every effort? What is church unity worth to you? Is it worth you laying down your rights For someone else. Is it worth you, in those conflict situations, not to be right all the time? You don't have to have the last word. You can be misunderstood. That's okay, because unity is more important. Is it worth for you to take criticism and not retaliate? Is it worth you swallowing your pride? And yes, you're not the only one who's wrong here, but you will take the first step to move towards them. And you will apologize for what you can apologize for. Is that worth it to you? Is it worth you going that extra mile to actually accept, not just tolerate, accept someone who plainly annoys you? Or actually really forgiving someone who's hurt you? Or at least moving towards them, even though they haven't yet said sorry? Is unity, and for some of us, is this? Is it worth you just getting involved? Not just standing on the sidelines in church community, but getting involved, right, into relationships. Yes, messy, sin-riddled relationships, because that's what community is like. Even though it's easier for you to stand at the edges, come, leave straight after church, not to get to know anyone. I know, it's a bit of self-protection involved, I know. But is it worth you doing that, actually getting involved, getting to know people? It will inconvenience you, it may even hurt you. Is it worth it for you? Do you know why I think it's worth, quite frankly, for me, maybe for you, not quite as much as it should, especially on my worst days? I'll tell you why. It's because it didn't cost me like it cost Jesus. Right? It didn't cost me like it cost you. Did you notice a couple of times Paul says this? Uh, it's, for example, 14 verse 15, he says, If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love Do not by your eating destroy someone, what, for whom Christ died. At the Rice uh, rally for youth last year, and um, our dear sister Iris actually shared about this uh, at at a fundraising dinner a couple of weeks ago, Steve Chong gave this challenge. He was a speaker, and he's coming to speak to us in two weeks' time. He said this, you know how much you're worth by how how much someone is willing to sacrifice for you, right? You know how much you're worth by how much someone is willing to sacrifice for you. Now, that's certainly true for individuals, all people here. Jesus died for you. That's how much you're worth. You're you're worth the death of God. But you know what it's even more true of? It's even more true for the church. If you read the New Testament, its emphasis is just as much on the body as it is on the individual, right? His body and the unity of that body was worth Him dying for. You see, this section of Romans challenges us to think about the price that the Lord Jesus paid. And He paid His life for our unity. That's how much it's worth. I don't think I think it's worth that much because I didn't have to pay for it. In those secondary matters of conscience, but more broad- broadly, let's just apply it to how we relate to each other generally in community life. How much is unity worth for you? Because it costs Jesus his life. So the next time we fight and divide and criticize, the next time we'll hold back an apology, we'll not forgive, the next time we decide we're going to gossip and talk about someone else behind their back, do you know what we're doing? We're saying, Lord Jesus, thanks for dying, but your death is quite cheap. Not really worth that much. Because I'm not willing to go out of my way to hold together the unity that you paid with blood. That's what we're saying. How much is it worth to you? Let's pray. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.